Once again, continuing in this recap and overview of the book of Romans in chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, anguish and purpose. I think it's aptly named. Certainly the Lord has brought us to such a time as this. Anguish and purpose, part two. Paul writes to the Romans. And what he writes to them is not simply high theology. What he writes to them is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ from front to back. And Paul begins by saying, as we have reminded ourselves now for I think the last three and a half months, we're going to keep doing it. Just put this thing back together. Paul reminds us that he is not ashamed, but instead that he is eagerly obliged to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, the wrath of God revealed against men, the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation, literally paying the debt for our sin. God ransoming back His people to Himself. Purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ. That the one who has been forever just might become the justifier. We see it in Abraham the father of faith. He believed God. And in his goodness and in his might, and it is in his might, that he reckoned Abraham's faith as more than it was. He reckoned it as righteousness. The very power of God on display For faith is not powerful on itself, but instead the power lies in the one in whom we believe. And having been justified by faith, we rejoice. We boast in the hope that God gives us. And we do that particularly in times when the eyes of men don't see any hope. Man, we were dead. Born in the image of our father Adam from dust and to dust, and yet in Christ we live because we died. We know as the people of God our identity. That a Christian is one who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Who by the power of God died with Christ was buried with Christ and is risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life, a profound identity that is nothing less than life from death and calling into existence that which did not previously exist. By the Spirit we were buried with Him that we may be raised with Him. Oh, men are enslaved by their own being. For those who are in the flesh, Paul says, cannot please God. But in Christ you have a new being and a new identity. For you, however, 
are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have been adopted. You have literally been set, positioned as a son or a daughter of God through Jesus Christ. You have an inheritance The Spirit Himself and nothing less being the very deposit guaranteeing what is to come to you. God will not forfeit on the heavy price that He has already paid. We are sealed by the Spirit of His Son. So much so that when we don't even know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit intercedes for us, for me, and for you. And therefore, we believe from the depth of our being the most audacious claim in all of Scripture. That Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Friends, if you love God, it's because you are called by God. And if you love God because you are called by God, Believe it or not, well, no, just believe it. (laughs) You've never had a bad day. There's hard days. Seems like lately the Lord's been just letting them stack up like a deck of cards. There's hard days. But friends, there are no bad ones for those who love him and are called according to his purpose never had a bad day and yet man when we look through Romans 9 Paul's had some hard days he's had some tough days he's had some days where there is great anguish in his heart so much so that what we saw last week was contrary to what you see in the English translation Paul does not say I could wish that I myself would be forsaken what he says in his original pen was I do wish that I myself was forsaken if it would just mean the salvation of my brothers There are two great truths at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Number one, to Israel belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul breaks over the fact that those who were given so much are so lost. Not simply to the point that he could wish himself accursed as though that it was simply theory or possibility. 
but instead he actually wishes himself accursed. The very heart of Jesus Christ on display. The same heart that said, I will go and be forsaken by the Father in order that my adopted brothers and sisters might be saved. I think we made it pretty clear last week. I'll say it again just so that we can't be taken out of context. Man, salvation belongs to the Lord. Paul can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody but Christ could do it. And praise God, he did it. That we might be saved. The lostness of men particularly in the context of the people of Israel. But the lostness of men is not a reality that is simply cold, intellectual, and indifferent. But instead is worthy of the deepest emotive response by the people of God. If your heart doesn't break for the lost you probably are and yet even in the depth of Paul's sorrow a man that understood the gospel of Jesus Christ better than you or I or us collectively ever will I mean, this is a guy that said, look, man, he killed me. (laughs) I went to heaven and saw the stuff. Even in the depth of his sorrow, Paul's gaze is fixed firmly on the faithfulness of a good God. He writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not In the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I want us to take a little time today to consider the unstoppable nature of the word of a good and faithful God and Savior Man, it is unstoppable. Paul says it this way, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. Can you hear the desperation in his voice? But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, that about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A sovereign God is sovereign. Praise God he's a good God too. He's not one or the other. He's both. And contrary to what so commonly comes from the pulpit, he doesn't have any desire to be let off the hook for either one. He's completely good with being sovereign and good even when things are hard man in the book of isaiah in chapter 14 in verse 24 through 27 the lord speaks to the prophet and he says this the lord of hosts is sworn now look You couldn't say, gosh darn it, in my Granny Manus' house because that was just another way of swearing and you weren't supposed to do it. But when the Lord begins to swear by himself, it's time to pay attention the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains will trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder this is the purpose that I purposed concerning the whole earth. So just in case you were thinking that this was 
context specific to the Assyrians. The Assyrian that's spoken of here hasn't shown up yet. Different topic for a different day. This is the purpose that I purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In chapter 33, the psalmist says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. It's not just that God purposes. It's that he purposes out of his heart. That this is where his good purpose comes from. Later on in chapter 55, Isaiah will record in verse 10 through 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You know, if you want to talk about God's goodness in His sovereign purpose, even in the midst of things being hard, you could just proof text this and move on. I mean, after all, this is the guy that wrote and. Just in the last chapter in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, if you want to take the sovereignty of God and proof text it as God being good in the salvation of his people, chapter 8, verse 28 through 30 is it. There it is. Done. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, conformed, glorified. And yet, Paul doesn't proof text it and move on. He spends the first third of chapter 9 agonizing over the lostness of his brothers. Now, man, the cold calculating flesh right here, what it does is go, well, listen, if they're not, if they're not foreknown, then the rest of it is... For granted. And if they are, the rest of it's for granted. But that's not what he does. What he does is grind his teeth and say, Man, I would be accursed if they would just listen and believe. And yet, in the midst of grinding his teeth, Paul looks himself straight in the mirror 
and says, let me tell you something, it's not as though the word of God has failed. You don't get one or the other. It's not as though the word of God has failed. They are the people of promise. God knows exactly what he's doing. As a matter of fact, that's where Paul's going to go. What Paul's going to say is all of this truth, all of this absolute predestination, all of this foreknowledge, all of, all of this justification, all of this conformity all of, to, to, to the very image of Christ, all of this glorification that is, that is so certain that it can be spoken about as though it is already complete, all of this stuff, all of this pain, all of this not understanding why my brothers won't just listen to the word of God and come and be saved, all of this is occurring exactly according to the purpose of God. And it's not occurring apart from his heart. It's occurring according to it. The very reason that Paul agonizes about the lostness of his brothers is because that is the heart of Christ in him that he is being conformed to. I would caution you that there is great danger in projecting our expectations of what constitutes goodness upon God. There is great danger when we think the good is going to be one thing. God demonstrates it to be another. And we are disappointed in what the good of God actually is. God's way is not man's way. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Boy, it's Isaiah heavy day today. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. How often we say it. How hard it is to embrace when things are actually hard. God's plan for the good will not be my plan and it will not be your plan. It will be his plan. He will not be conformed to us. We will be conformed to him. And and I don't know about you, but for the most part, I can take pretty much whatever you got as long as I only have to do it once. 
But when you start having to do it over and over and over and over again is when the flesh starts showing itself to be as weak as it actually is. Paul says, I want to remind you about something. This is the manner in which the promise came. Now listen, Christian, it's not up to you to decide whether you like this or not. This is the manner in which the promise came. Period. For this is what the promise said. That at about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now look, we're not going to go into it this morning. We don't have time. God didn't hate Esau without cause. And yes, it really means hate. It's the same word in the Greek that is used when it says that Christ loved righteousness and hated iniquity. It means hate. He hated Esau. The reason he hated Esau, Scripture tells us, because Esau was godless. That's why. He didn't hate him without cause. It's not the question. The question is why in the world did he love a rat like Jacob? And Paul just told us he didn't love Jacob because of Jacob. He loved Jacob because of him. Man, this is the difference between agape and phileo. This is not love because the object is lovely. It's love because the lover is lovely. And he says, man, I'm going to love you because of me. Not because of you, but because of me. To the point that when I give you my heart, yours will break for those that don't come to me. Because mine is breaking for you. He did all of this, it said, for a very specific reason. In order that his purpose might be fulfilled. Man, the Lord's got a purpose. And let me tell you, it's a big deal. It's a big purpose. It has some hard stuff. It's so big that, um, hey man, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This is the way the promise came to you. That ain't easy. And he doesn't want off the hook. So today, we mourn the loss of one of our own. 
And I was laying in bed last night, not sleeping, and considering the good purpose of God that is often difficult that we find ourselves at this text on this day. And it occurs to me, if you've read the first chapter of Jamie Freeman's book, that you would know that basically what happened to Jamie and what happened to Sandra was the same thing. Lack of oxygen in the birthing canal. And yet, the outcome couldn't have been more different. Um, This cross stitch down here in the frame, Sandra made for me years ago. A lot of you have something similar. It says, preach the word no matter what. Sandra couldn't have written the first paragraph of the first chapter of Jamie's book if she spent three years trying. And James couldn't cross-stitch that if I put a 45 to his head. Why? What men want to tell you is we just don't know. No, we know. We know. We know. Because it's he has purpose. And even when it's hard and even when we don't understand, his purpose is good. And we are his people. Man, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. It cannot be done. But you, you are not in the flesh. But you are in Christ Jesus if indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And let me tell you, it will make things hard. It'll make your heart break in ways that it would not have broke. You will suffer pain and anguish according to the purpose of God that you would not have suffered apart from Him. And it is worth every single moment. Every moment. For we know, we know that all things work for good for those 
who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even in the midst of repetitive sorrow. Well, there was more to it than that, but I think we're going to leave it right there. This is how the promise came to you. Sarah will have a son. The one who is just is faithful to become the justifier. He's done it. He's given us the inheritance of his spirit. And as difficult as it can be from time to time, he has given us his heart. And it is good. Let's pray.